G'day again, everyone. I've been looking forward to uh, preaching on this passage for some weeks, so we finally got to it, which is great. So I'm going to pray as we begin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage we have to look at together today and for the reminder of just how amazing it is what you've done for us in Jesus. And so we pray that you'll help us to set aside now the things that might distract us and help us to concentrate on understanding your word correctly uh, and taking a hold of it ourselves by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many, many years ago, I went uh, canyoning in, in the Blue Mountains, which is unusual if you know me, but uh, some friends organised it and uh, we went to Mount Wilson up in the Blue Mountains and then we had to hike in to this river had to go with our backpacks, carry our lilos with us and then get there and you blow up your lilo and then you jump on it and go down this river. And it was pretty amazing. Uh, it was uh, great fun. I remember no one had told me to wear a wetsuit. So I was there in shorts and a t-shirt and I was frozen by the end of it. We nearly had to stop at hospital on the way back for me. Uh, but at one point I slipped over and, and fell on my back. So at different points you had to scramble across sort of shallow sections where it was too shallow for the lilos. And I was, I was walking along with my backpack, I fell over, fell under the water, it was only a few inches of water, and my backpack somehow perfectly wedged in a crevice underneath the water. And so I was lying there on my back, and, and it was totally clear water, I could see everything, but there was about two inches away from air, and I was lying there and just sort of flailing around, and I couldn't, couldn't work out how to get out of it, and I was literally drowning, you know when they talk about your whole life flashing before your eyes, that's what was happening to me. Uh, thankfully, one of my friends turned around, saw me. I think the others were laughing, thinking I was having a bit of a joke or something, but he saw me and he, he grabbed me and pulled me up uh, out of the water. And he still jokes about saving my life. He thinks he's joking, but uh, I told him, no, 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 you really did save my life. But it's, it's a horrible feeling, isn't it, to be, to be totally helpless when you can do nothing to save yourself. If you've ever been caught in a rip at the surf, at the beach, you know the feeling, it doesn't matter how much you struggle, you, you can't get out of it. Uh, I know since, since being a parent, sometimes I'm in there with the kids and then you're like, oh, I'm too deep here. And, and thankfully, nice people come and, come and help you out. But it's absolutely horrible when you can't save yourself. That is how we are meant to be feeling at this point we've got to in the book of Romans. Uh, it's been hard going, the first three chapters, hasn't it? Doing it here at church and in gospel teams as well. Uh, it's been hard going because the Apostle Paul has really only had one goal in these opening chapters of Romans, and that is to show us how helpless we are in and of ourselves before God. That, that's been his point. He's been convincing us of the reality of our sin. And he's been trying to convince us, and I hope you have been convinced, that every one of us, is a sinner, that every one of us, it doesn't matter how, how religious you are, it doesn't matter how moral you think you are, every one of us deserves the righteous judgment of God. And so that horrible word has come up over and over again, wrath, God's wrath, that just keeps talking about, it's been relentless and he's, he's been trying to get us to see by this point, chapter 3 verse 20, that it doesn't matter how moral you think you are, there is no one righteous, not even one. Remember that verse last week? There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. We have all sinned. We all deserve God's judgment and God's anger. We're meant to feel hopeless by this moment we've got to at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. We're meant to feel hopeless because we're helpless. We deserve God's judgment. We can do nothing to save ourselves because to avoid God's wrath, we need to be righteous, but there's no one who's righteous. So there is no hope. But then 
we come to chapter 3, verse 21. Get there now. Look there with me. Romans 3, 21 starts with possibly the two greatest words in the Bible. Look with me. It says, but now. I remember hearing Brendan do a youth talk and he said, this is the biggest but in the Bible. It's got him a, a lot of laughs from the teenagers. But he's absolutely right. Because it's saying, but now something has changed. There is a reason that in less politically correct times, everyone understood that history hinges on the coming of Christ, that we had BC before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. It's because at that moment, but now, everything changed. But now there is hope. Not because of us. We haven't changed. We haven't done anything. We're helpless. But now in Jesus, God has done something. It's like the lifeguard who comes and grabs you out of the water. God has entered history and acted to save us. Which is what makes this, in my view, the greatest passage of all Scripture. Now, I know I'm prone to saying whatever book of the Bible I'm preaching on is my favourite book, but this truly is the greatest passage in all of Scripture. Even just after our nine o'clock service this morning, as, as people walked out of church, Two different people came up to me and, and, and said to me, it was reading this passage that made me become a Christian. It was reading this passage that helped me understand the gospel. That's how massive this passage is. So let's look from verse 21. It says, but now apart from the law, that's important because remember the law can't save you. You can't be righteous enough from God. So it's apart from the law. God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. We cannot be righteous, but now God gives us the gift of righteousness. God declares us to be righteous. God declares us to be innocent of sin. He, he declares us to be clean in his sight, not because we are, not by what we do, it's apart from the law. The law couldn't solve our problem. It just pointed out our problem. No, we don't earn God's righteousness. We just receive it as a gift. And we do that how? We receive it how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. It's repeated there. It's to all who believe. There are no catches. This gift is available to anyone. Just as everyone has sinned, and fallen short of God's glory, well, in the same way, the gift of God's righteousness is available to everyone, if we will just turn and trust in Jesus. Now, that truth is the greatest news that has ever been told. It's the truth we call justification by faith. I hope you've been doing what I suggested back in, in our first week in the series on Romans and writing down these big words and their, and their definitions. It's what, justification is one of those Bible words you need to know and understand and delight in. Write it down. To be justified is to be declared righteous, to be declared innocent by God, just as if we never sinned, is how some people like to remember it. To be justified just as if I never sinned in God's eyes. And God offers that to everyone if they will just receive his gift by faith. That is the greatest truth you can ever come to know. And what is the only right response to knowing that truth? The only right response to that is to trust Jesus, first of all, and then to praise God. That's the only right response to this, this passage, to trust Jesus and praise God. But it actually leaves a really important question. How can God justify sinners? 
How can God call us innocent when we are still sinners? How can God do that? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You know, it's great that God does it. It's wonderful for us. But how can he do that and still be righteous himself, given a righteous person keeps their word and God has said the wages of sin is death? I'll show you what I mean by this being a problem. We hate it when judges let guilty criminals off with light sentences, don't we? You, you know what happens, you know, when there's been a, an awful thing, like a murder, and then the judge says, oh, but because of their circumstances and it gets out, they're getting four years in jail and two years with good behaviour. How do we respond to that? I'll tell you what people in Sydney do, they ring 2GB. Or they write letters to me and they say, can you believe how out of touch this judge is? The, 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 the crime deserves to be punished. What's wrong with that judge? What's wrong with our legal system? Let's sack the Attorney General. You know, we want justice, is what we cry, isn't it? Guilty criminals should be punished. Well, if you've been listening for the last three weeks, we are guilty before God. We've sinned. We've hurt other people. Most of all, we've hurt God himself. And God says that the wages of sin is death. So if God just lets us off, doesn't that make God like those weak judges we we complain about? If we are sinners who deserve God's wrath, how can he just declare us innocent? It's great. I mean, it's great for our sake, but doesn't that make God corrupt? Doesn't it make God a liar? It actually makes God unrighteous because he's not keeping his word. Let me tell you, the Jews of Jesus' time felt this very, very keenly. This is one of the main critiques they had of Paul and Peter and the other Christians as they went preaching the gospel. They said, how can it be totally free? That's not fair. How can God just forgive, especially those Gentiles who haven't even kept kept the law like us? How can God do that? How can he just declare us righteous? Surely I've got to do something. Sadly, we in our modern world, we often don't feel this tension. And that's not because we're more godly. That's not the reason. That's because we don't treat sin very seriously. And so when you talk to many, many people in our modern world, people think God should just be our big cuddly teddy bear who you, you, you ignore for most of the time and then you turn to in a time of crisis and he'll give you a cuddle. Or, or a nice old man who, who just forgives everyone because that's what God's meant to do, except the really bad people who are worse than me, he can judge them. But if we've understood Romans 1 to 3, and there is a reason I have made us labour over those chapters, over three weeks at church and three weeks in our gospel team, there, there is a method to my madness sometimes. But if we've really understood Romans 1 to 3, we would feel this conundrum really keenly. God is the righteous judge. God is to be feared, not cuddled. So how can that God declare us innocent but still keep his word and be righteous himself? How can justice and forgiveness both happen? Well, the answer is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it is in the cross of Christ, that is where God's justice and his mercy meet. That's what verses 24 to 26 are about. Come with me. It says, they, that is all people who believe in Jesus. I hope that is you. So you are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry if you don't like all the big words, but to grasp how wonderful God is, you need to know and understand all these big words that end in shun, as the Colin Buchanan song for our kids says. So we've seen justification already. 
That's to be declared righteous, be declared innocent. Here's another one, redemption. It comes from the world of slavery. In the ancient world, slavery was just normal. And if you were a slave, you're owned by your master. And the only way you could be set free is if someone redeemed you. If someone paid the price to your master to to set you free, they paid the ransom, if you like. Well, because of our sin, we've given up our freedom. We are held as slaves by sin and the certainty of God's judgment. But God has paid the ransom price to redeem us. That's the point here. God has paid the price to set us free. And he explains how in verse 25, look there, it says, God presented him, that is Jesus, as a propitiation through his blood. Now, you're probably thinking, fair thing and Phil, enough of the, the big words that end in Shurn already. And I think you could go your whole life and never use the word propitiation. Your assignment this week, your, your, your homework, is to use the word propitiation in a sentence out, out in, in, at work or somewhere like that. See how people respond. Please bear with me. This is such an important concept to grasp. You might have a translation that says sacrifice of atonement, if you've got a different translation of the Bible. That's another way of capturing it, but propitiation is, is the best word for it. Just as an aside, please don't be one of those Christians who isn't willing to use their brain to, to understand the, the key concepts of the Bible. I get really sad with Christians who think that it's somehow pious to not know very much. You say, oh, I've just got a, a, a simple faith. They don't want to grapple with, with the Scriptures. Now, grapple with it. Understand this. Propitiation, to understand that, you have to throw yourself back into the ancient world, into a world that's totally unfamiliar to us. And in fact, this is the world of just about every culture before the gospel got there. So even today in cultures where where the gospel has not got to, this is the world people live in. It's a world of fear, a world of fear of the gods or the God or God or whoever they perceive it to be. And, and all cultures throughout all history, nearly all it seems, have had this concept that the gods are angry and they need to be propitiated. What that means is they need a sacrifice to turn aside their anger. So if you went on a boat trip in the ancient world before you went, you killed a, a goat to sacrifice it, to, to make sure the God of the sea wasn't angry with you. If you went on a land trip, you, you killed a goat before you went into that God's territory. That's the way people worked. Now, we actually do the idea of propitiating in the modern world in a different way. You would have made a propitiation to someone at some point. Because when we upset someone, we try to make it right. That's what we do. So we go and apologise, but we also take a gift, don't we? We call it a peace offering. Well, what that is, is a sacrifice of atonement. It's, a, it's an offering to say, I know you should be rightfully angry at me, but this is to turn aside your anger. It's like the husband who's forgotten the wedding anniversary. The next day, what does he do? He, buy, he sacrifices some money and buys a bunch of flowers. And he takes it home as a tip to you guys, but do it on the wedding anniversary. But when he's doing that the next day, he is propitiating her anger. Next time you're on the train, you see a man with a bunch of flowers, say to him, I hope that propitiation goes well. There you go. You, you get the point. How much more is this true for the one true and living God? See, as we've seen in Romans 1 to 3, the true and living God is rightfully angry with me and with you, with all of humanity. His anger needs to be turned aside. 
Now, God prepared the way for us to understand this in the Old Testament. You know, in, in the book of Leviticus or the book of Exodus, where, where they offered all those sacrifices and they killed lambs and goats and blood went everywhere. We feel squeamish when we read it. What was that all about? Why did they have to do it? It was a sacrifice of propitiation. God was angry at their sin. He said the wages of sin is death. And so a lamb died in their place to turn God's anger aside. That was the purpose of the Old Testament sacrifices. But the blood of a goat or a bull could never pay for human sin. That's why they had to keep doing them week in, week out, year in, year out. The Old Testament sacrifices were only ever pointing forward to a greater sacrifice. But here is the wonder of it. No gift we could come up with could ever pay the price for our sin. No sacrifice we could ever make could ever turn aside God's righteous wrath towards us. And so God did it for us. This is the most amazing, I'll turn aside my own anger. And so the point here is Jesus is that greater sacrifice. Jesus was willing to be that sacrifice for you and for me. When he was nailed to that cross and he died, he was the propitiation to turn aside God's wrath. He took the true and fair penalty for sin, the wrath of God, he took it upon himself. Justice needed to be done because God is righteous and he would not allow sin to go undealt with, but he wanted to forgive us. So instead of laying it on us, who deserved it, God himself sends the sacrifice. While at the same time, he forgives us, while at the same time, he maintains his justice. That's the point there in verses 25 and 26. Look there with me. They, they might have sounded like a bit hard to understand as we first read them, but look with me now, understanding it. See, it says, God presented him, Jesus, as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God had passed over the sins previously committed. That wasn't just. He had to punish sin. So God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. It's this last bit that's the key. So that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see what it's saying there? In that last sentence, it is only in the cross of Jesus that we see God's justice and his mercy dealt with. Because that's where he shows his righteousness by punishing sin. Praise God that it was Jesus who took it, not us. But he also shows his mercy by declaring us righteous or innocent. And what do we need to do to accept that wonderful gift? Believe, trust, have faith. Those words are all the same. Have faith in Jesus. And by his death, your sin will be dealt with and you are declared righteous in God's sight. Now, I just want to pause at this point and I want to ask every person here, have you received that gift? One day, we are all going to have to stand before God. This is what Romans 1 and 2 have been about. We're going to stand before God and give an account for our lives and God has warned us we have rejected him and we deserve his judgment. So what will you say on that day? When God says to you, okay, What have you got to say? What will you say to turn aside his just wrath? Will you try to point him to all the good things you've done? Will you say, look at how I cared for my family. Look at my church attendance. Look at at what I gave away to charity. Will you try to point God to the fact you didn't do anything really bad? I mean, I didn't kill anyone. Will you try to point to other people and say, well, I'm better than him? 
If you do, I fear for you because God will not be impressed. So no, when we stand before God, there is only one answer that will turn aside his just judgment. There is only one propitiation that works, and that is the blood of Jesus. So when God says, why should I spare you rather than give you what you deserve? The only answer God wants to hear is, I don't deserve it, but Jesus died for me. I don't deserve it, but Jesus died for me. And I trust in Jesus. And God will say to you, welcome. Welcome, you are a child of God. There is no more important question to ask than that question. Do you trust in Jesus? I would love you to answer that question today with a resounding yes. Come and talk to me afterwards. Come and talk to someone else you trust. I would love you to take that step today. And of course, if we do believe, like I hope everyone here already, if we do understand this, if we understand what Jesus has done for us, the implications are huge. That's why there's another 13 chapters of the book of of Romans. Uh, It it changes our lives totally. It it changes our aspirations. It, It changes our attitude to other people. It changes what we find important in life. It changes what we live for. It changes everything. And the rest of the book of Romans is going to unpack those implications. We're going to have a great time over the next few weeks as we get into these chapters of Romans. But I find it really interesting what the implication is that the Apostle Paul draws out first. And this is our last point of our sermon. He says, because of this, there is no place for pride. Look at verse 27 with me. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Now, he is not talking at this point about you boasting about your sporting success or, or how good a chef you are or whatever else you think you're pretty good at. He's, he's not talking about that. He's talking about boasting in front of God and by implication, comparing yourself to other people. That's what he's talking about. And the point is, if you understand that you bring nothing to God, then there's no place for pride before God. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to moral people. He's talking to churchgoers who think they're better than other people. Uh, it, it reminds me of the story Jesus told about the two men who went to the temple to pray. Do you know that parable? Where Jesus talks about the two men who go in and one man goes in and he stands up in front of everyone. He prays and he says, God, I thank you for how religious I am. I thank you for how generous I am. I thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. And then the sinner over there prays and he just falls on his knees and he says, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And then Jesus said, only one of those two men went home justified that day. Only one man went home right with God. See, when we understand our true state before God, and when we understand that we're only made right with him through what Jesus has done for us, all of our pride in our spiritual achievement evaporates. All of our pride and our moral achievement is gone. We've got nothing to boast about. If you get there and say to God, look at how much I gave, even when Warden Don made an announcement, look at how much I I gave, but you didn't trust in Jesus, God will say to you, so what? What are you boasting about? Why didn't you give away the rest? I gave it all to you. If you say to God, look at what a moral person I was, look at how successful I've been, but you didn't trust in Jesus, God will say, so what? What are you boasting about? You see, we learn something incredibly important about faith here. In our sin, we can even make faith a matter of boasting. Aren't we amazing the way we do this? Yes, I know I'm a sinner, but at least I trusted in Jesus, unlike those other people. I deserve some credit for that. No, 
Faith is not your good work. Faith is the opposite of achievement. You cannot be proud of faith because faith is just acknowledging I'm helpless. Faith is just putting out our dirty little hands to receive God's incredible gift. You cannot be proud of your faith. So what can we boast in? Boast in Jesus. Boast in Jesus. Boasting is another way of saying, what do you talk about? Boast in Jesus. It's that great line we sing in How Deep the Father's Love. You know that song? I was too late for the musos in my sermon preparation this week for us to sing it straight after the sermon, but I put the words on the screen. That song we sing where he says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. I won't boast in anything about me, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And really, that is our application for today. You know how we get to the end of sermons and we say, you know, what are we going to do in response? The rest of the book of Romans is going to spell out our response if we know this truth. But for now, the right response is just bask in how wonderful this truth is. There's the right response. The right response is just believe. Just trust in Jesus. The right response is praise God that he is both righteous and merciful. And if we're going to boast in anything... Let's be people who boast in our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. We thank you that even though we do not deserve it and we could do nothing to turn aside your righteous wrath, you solved the problem for us. You sent your Son to die in our place. And so, Father, we thank you for this and we pray that we will respond in faith, trusting in Jesus and help us not to try to justify ourselves by our moral achievements or anything like that. Instead, help us to be people who boast in Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.